Welcome to Pedagog, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, Kirsten L. Scott talks about Black feminist epistemologies and pedagogies, hip-hop and African-American rhetorical traditions, multimodality, and historically Black colleges and universities. Daughter of the U.S. South, Dr. Kirsten L. Scott is a community-driven educator who centers and embodies liberatory Black feminist and womanist practice. She works across the disciplines of rhetorical theory and writing studies, digital and Black studies, as well as critical pedagogy. Kirsten is currently working on her first book, which explores HBCUs and their survival within U.S. higher education. Within the city of Pittsburgh, she is lead organizer and facilitator of Hype Media, a critical literacies program focused on youth-led story-making possibilities that respond to stigmatized narratives of Black girls, Black women, and Black communities. Kirsten is co-founder of D-Black, Digital Black Lit and Composition, a virtual and in-person community offering writing support for Black scholars. She teaches at the University of Pittsburgh, where she was awarded the Kenneth P. Dietrich School of Arts and Sciences Award for Excellence in Graduate Mentoring. Her work can be found in Kairos, Prose Studies, The Rutledge Reader of African American Rhetoric, Mobility and Work in Composition, Bridging the Gap, Multimodality in Theory and Practice, and Kentucky Teacher Education Journal. Kirsten, thanks so much for joining us. You teach at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm interested in hearing more about your pedagogies or your pedagogical practices and what you draw from or what you draw on and kind of what's your overarching aim or goal when it comes to teaching writing? Um, I'll start with the, the, you know, the latter half of that question to, to really emphasize that in my first year writing classes, I am trying to embrace a, an understanding of the undergraduate as already a researcher. Um, first and foremost, understanding that they are doing research often um, and poking around and thinking through things and curious about um, you know, information, whether that's about, you know, where to take a vacation and curating like a whole weekend of events or, or reviewing Yelp reviews or, you know, just um, simply looking through their social media to decide who to follow or, or you know, what, what like rhetorical decisions to make when commenting. Um, that, that research and, and analytic thinking are, are happening more often than we sometimes give credit for. And, and then to, to really take that uh, possibility and and move it in particular directions that that challenge um, positionality, that challenge worldview and ideology, that challenge just really exposure sometimes that um, students aren't always aware of what they don't know um, um, or what's even possible with what they do know. And so that feels like a very central kind of aim, no matter who I'm teaching um, in what ways. Um, and so in a more informed way, when, you know, first time I taught on the collegiate level was in a master's program. It's kind of wild to even think about that progression from graduate student instructor to uh, tenure stream faculty. Um, and across, I guess now, wow, 11 years. I, I just, I don't know, this is the first time I've said this out loud. Um, that, you know, that first, first go round, I remember um, the pedagogy class I took at the University of Alabama and we 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 read this book about like uh, composition pedagogies, and it was kind of um, kind of survey style book, you know, five or six pages on different pedagogies. And I remember the feminist pedagogy. I remember the community uh, based pedagogy. And I really feel like those two capture um, the work that are, are most important to me. 
And I would even qualify it a bit further to think about black feminist um, pedag pedagogies um, and the way that black feminist thought and epistemologies really move the work that I do in the classroom. And so I really struggle now. I understand the importance there um, when I was a master's student and really trying to build my pedagogical lens and and um, like energy to, to go um, and to show up for the first time in those early times. Um, but I really do feel a little constrained thinking about like my pedagogy as a, like a contained thing. Um, and, and that's because I feel so inspired by so many things often. Like I think back to my earliest memories of like playing school with my brothers in the summertime and how like my grandmother was our imagined lunch lady and like how that informs my pedagogy, like this idea of like care and gathering and, and like, um, and, and just imagination. And then I think about, you know, the legacies of, of, of teachers that I've had and how their different pedagogical styles have informed my own and some who I just like completely reject that I'd never want to replicate. Um, and so I, I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge the way that those pedagogical memories um, inform, inform my own practice um, and praxis. But in a very tangible way, I think that um, you know, as I said, like this black feminist um, lens of thinking about like community, um, thinking about the idea of self-definition, um, you know, for myself, thinking about how I show up in the classroom or learning spaces and what's required of me, um, the kind of memories and traumas that I hold and that I bring into the space, my embodied realities, um, they all create a, a very, I would say, expansive pedagogy. Um, that, that I cannot disavow. I think it really moves me and, and, and allows me to connect with students. Um, for the last five or six years, I've taught exclusively a hip hop writing course for first year writing. And so that has led me to really focus on hip hop ed, you know, and thinking through the ways that we kind of incorporate, um, the elements of hip hop into teaching. Um, and so in that way, you know, when you kind of merge this idea of community, black feminist uh, thought and, and hip hop, I just feel I feel so alive then when it comes to teaching first year writing. Um, I started that down that path um, simply as a means of survival. I, you know, I felt in graduate school a little isolated, both in in lived experience, but also intellectually. Um, and I, I felt that if I had to teach I was, it was going to be imperative that I started teaching something that mattered to me. Um, and, and writing was always important, but I needed something like thematic, you know, just conceptual to, to hold on to a bit more. And so I turned to the music that I was listening to, to make it through like my own studies. And, um, it really opened up this space of, um, of, of hip hop, um, education and hip hop pedagogies that allowed me to take culture uh, um, as, as a topic and really challenge students to, to think about the ways that they're passively engaging culture and actively engaging culture and what that allows and disallows for writing. Within that became this kind of, uh, realization of some even earlier experiences with blues and jazz, jazz specifically in my upbringing in Memphis, um, and how much jazz was informing my work. You know, this idea of improvisation. Um, the, the importance of pauses and silence with, you know, riffs and, and knowing that it's okay to depart and kind of get lost when you're teaching that like something will come of it. Um, and so I really, really appreciated the, the ways that hip hop 
and hip hop education and pedagogies have sustained me as a pedagogue, but even further inspired my students. Can you talk more about centering hip hop or I know that you also center African-American rhetorical traditions in your writing classes. What does that look like? What kinds of texts do you use or what kinds of assignments? The idea of uh, rhetoric for me is essential to both my first year writing instruction and then also just um, instruction writ large, whether I'm teaching in community settings um, or upper level um, uh, course offerings. Um, that the idea of intentional messaging um, becomes really important for me to um, not only move through the material that I'm working with, but also to help students see the potential for their own analyses and connection points that there are messages um, happening, um, that there are possibilities within those messages and impossibilities, um, and how we really sit and grapple with those moments. And so as it relates to hip hop, um, you know, I'm, I'm very much interested in thinking with students um, around the idea of, you know, things like coded language, like what are we actually talking about when we talk about hip hop? You know, how often is hip hop being substituted for rap or how often is hip hop being substituted for black, um, you know, or urban, you know, what these words really mean, the weight that they carry and how how loose and um, and careless even some folks are in their usage. And then how often some folks are malicious and intentional with their usage in a non-celebratory or, um, you know, derogatory way. And so from the beginning, I'm already thinking about rhetoric as a way to engage blackness um, um, and to really interrogate what's at the center of what we talk about and what we don't talk about, what we're willing to explore or what we're willing to foreclose um, as possible for not only the first year writing classroom, but also just culture and life in general. The my movement to the University of Pittsburgh was for um, you know the development of African American rhetoric. And one of my first kind of moments of observation was what was really lost if we only limited to um, a U.S. Uh, view of, of rhetoric um, as it relates to blackness. And so you know there was an early pivot to kind of more largely describe this work as thinking about black rhetorical traditions across the diaspora and, and also just in these very situated ways of understanding the, the vastness and the fluidness of, of rhetorical possibilities for, for Black life and culture. What's unique about that placement at the University of Pittsburgh is that it exists within the public and professional writing major. And so I'm, I'm able to then think through what it means to understand Blackness and Black messages and Black intentionality um, in public discourse, uh, which is really important to me. And so for text, you know, um, you know, that could range from thinking about the, uh, for instance, the Routledge Reader on African American Rhetoric, which gives us a nice survey and anthology style, uh, representation of text. And there's also an online companion to that reader, um, that allows a little bit of possibility across modalities, um, and range. There's also um, on African American rhetoric, I believe, um, an edited volume with Keith Gilliard and Adam Banks. Um, but there's also just a huge uh, collection of material, I'd say, across communication studies, um, across rhetorical studies, um, in, in black studies, uh, Africana studies, even education. 
And that's exactly how I approach my teaching of, of Black rhetoric, to, to think of it as multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary, moving across disciplines, and also moving across communities. And so I'm not limited to the spatial reality of the kind of intellectual academic sphere, but instead looking to communities and actually saying, like, what do people have to say about this? How do we look at their narratives? How do we use social media as a, a resource to see how people are circulating um, information, podcasts, um, you know, music uh, very much connected to my hip hop work, thinking through the ways that music has told stories. Um, and I think one one clear example and, and of course that I've really loved working on, it's pretty new, but I, I really, really appreciate it. Um, it's called Storying Black. And, and, and the class is really about the concept of storying. Um, as a um, both intellectual, literary even, and I would say literacy-driven epistemology that allows you to story something, to narrativize it. Um, and, and, and what really comes to mind is the work that Kevin Young is doing um, around the idea of storying, and that's really where that inspiration is drawn. But if you take the title of the course, I think this gives some insight into how I'm thinking about text and how I'm thinking about assignments. So I might um, take that first portion of the, the title and say, Storying Black Pittsburgh. And so now we're talking about spatial realities of storing Blackness. Or we might say, Storying Black History. And so in that, in that section uh, or units of the course, we're talking about um, uh, museums or we're talking about um, Black History campaigns. So we might watch ads or, or look at still images from billboards. Um, and then students are able to choose. So they might say like storying black, whatever, wherever they're from or storying black, whatever their major is. And so that really allows these vast possibilities for um, for exploring the idea of storying um, and blackness through these rhetorical interventions. And, you know, at once when I was teaching the hip hop course and even when I got into doing black rhetoric at an institution like the University of Pittsburgh, where there are. Uh, very few black students, you know, within the larger kind of makeup of the university, I was very hesitant. I, you know, I asked myself, what does it mean to, to teach concepts around blackness and black rhetoric in spaces where, you know, this is not the majority population? And some of this was a, you know, a direct response to my own experience of graduating from an HBCU, of being raised in the deep U.S. South and thinking about what it meant to have seen black people often um, and to to been in community and engagement with them very often and, and in very meaningful ways. Um, and, and I had to kind of back off of that feeling some. It's still it's still it still cycles in my head very often um, and, and very loudly. But there was so much to be gained in the moments of of sitting with students to think through what they knew and what they did not know, what they were willing to explore and what they were not willing to explore. And that's where that black feminist piece comes in, because I start every semester with this. Um, um, the University of Michigan has this um, heuristic called the social identity wheel. And it asks you to think about your identity constructions and where you are in proximity for engagement, meaning what do you think about the most? What do you think about the least? And so I use this as kind of this gauge, so to speak, for the semester. So at the beginning of the semester, the midterm point three quarters of the way and then the final. And and no matter where you are, I'm asking you to think about who you are and how you're showing up with these texts. What are you willing to explore and unwilling to explore? So it's really this act of critical vulnerability that asks you to lean in instead of leaning back 
into the work that's required to really think about culture in a meaningful way, whether you identify or not with the realities that are being described. Your teaching and research also intersects cultural rhetorics and multimodality. How does cultural rhetorics inform a multimodal approach to teaching writing and or vice versa? I really owe some of my academic introduction to multimodality to um, Danielle DeVos, who was um, a Watson visiting professor at the University of Louisville when I was finishing uh, my doctoral studies. She introduced us to one of Cindy Self's off-cited pieces um, about orality. And when we started to talk about orality, I remember there was this one section about, and it was, I think it was towards the end in the conclusion where Cindy Self makes the argument that, that there should never, it should never be understood that there's one tool or one way. I was, I'm very careful to say that um, Danielle introduced me to my intellectual understanding of multimodality because in that moment, I started to think back to all of the ways in which my entire life was shaped around the idea that there's, there's not one tool or one way to do anything. I mean, this is me thinking about my grandmother, like upcycling every like jar or container or, you know, um, learning a rap to learn multiplication facts, you know, or or just just countless examples that, that I can think through that allowed me to say that there is no one way or 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 one uh, set of tools or devices that I will use to convey a message. And to me, that is the practice of, of a culture. Um, and then further of a culture's rhetoric or a cultural uh, rhetoric. Um, and so in that way, I'm always thinking about, you know, myself as a meaning maker. You know, I think that as a pedagogue, I have the potential to impart meaning, but also to find meaning in all that I'm doing. And so that's an affirmation that I share with myself all the time that like I am a meaning maker and I am full of meaning. Um, and so I feel like all of the work that I'm doing is attempting to locate meaning um, so that it can be shared with other folks so that meaning could then be produced and reproduced in these multiple ways. Um, and so modalities for me become just like additional ways to engage that, you know, I think about educators like my partner who who always are like uh, so my partner taught on a primary level and. And I remember he would always talk about like differentiated learning. And, you know, those are not terms that we necessarily are bringing in. But when, you know, when he breaks it down, I'm just like, oh, that makes complete sense to me. You know, that you need to tailor material to particular learners so that they can have the most uh, advantageous outcomes. And I, I think about one of my my good friends, um, Sarah, Sarah Alvarez, who always says, like, we can we, we can learn so much from education. <laughs> In fact, we're like, we're often two steps behind them. And so I was just like, if you take this idea of differentiated learning or like what it means, you take differentiated learning as a rhetoric that you're thinking about what intentional steps do I need to to um, impart or to explore or to embody in order to to convey or reveal a particular message to someone. It just started to click for me that like I could actually construct these like units or pieces of material for students that would allow them to see so many more possibilities than just saying like, here's an article or here's a book and read it. But I want to be clear here because I do think that sometimes in multimodality, there's this kind of disavowal of the alphabetic text for some, 
Um, and and I, I do still find value in the alphabetic text for, for many. Um, and it makes me think of one of my favorite quotes from Toni Morrison. And, and she says, I only have 26 letters of the alphabet. I don't have color or music. I must use my craft to make the reader see the color and hear the sounds. And, and, and that quote is so important because I agree, like, I, I want my words to move, you know, I want them to feel poetic. But I, 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 I thought about what happens if I combine all these things with what Toni Morrison is saying. What if I have the words and the color and the sound? And I'm still able to make those words move that like that is even more impact. And so whether or not the student then turns to uh, the color and I'm kind of symbolizing that as like visual art, maybe, um, or the music, whether they're producing things orally. Um, I think what becomes most important to me is that they have at their disposal so many moments to be inspired and what what comes out on the other side. We'll figure it out. You know, we'll figure it out. Um, and so that has really been a central goal of mine to think about like what it means to take that practice with that engagement and think about the multiplicity of tools and ways and deliveries that we can make our ideas and our stories real and accessible for whomever encounters them. So I know you graduated from a historically black college and university or an HBCU and your research focuses on the histories and narratives of HBCUs. Can you talk more about this research and how your current research intervenes and extends the histories of rhetoric and composition as a field? So, yeah, um, I did attend an HBCU. I attended Tougaloo College in Tougaloo, Mississippi. You know, really most proud of that experience. Um, and And somewhat, as I'm pausing as I speak, it's because I'm still shocked somewhat at the ways in which that one educational experience, you know, or chapter has, has reshaped not only my own view of intellectual possibility, but also has, has, has shaped my career. Um, and so, I mean, I can go into so many ways, but I'll focus on the, um, the, the way that the research, um, projects and my current projects are are really thinking about HBCUs in meaningful ways. And so when I was a student at Tougaloo, I had to take this course as a first year student, and it was called Mission Involvement. Um, and much like the title kind of indicates, the goal was to help students figure out how to be involved and engaged. There was this mission that the college was on to make sure that we did not get lost in the weeds. Um, and so in that course, we had to read a book called Mississippi, The View from Tougaloo. Pretty standard historical text, a little over 250 pages, um, and it really chronicled the college's history from founding in 1869 until um, the late 1960s, early 1970s. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was an act of institutional pride, the, the, the course was, and, and the, the idea of including the book, we're going to help you understand this history. And in understanding the history, you will understand why you should be here and you should be involved because you're a part of some larger legacy and thus some larger future. Um, and this was a part of the college's mission. The tagline is Tougaloo College, where history meets the future. And so, you know, as a first year student, I was like, you know, I bought it. 
I was like, I am so proud to attend this college in this state of Mississippi who has had a troubled and fraught history with black education and look at all the things this amazing college has done. And I still, I still believe those things. But when I graduated, I reread the book. So five years later, I reread the book for the first time. And I was just like, no, this is, this is, this is, this is interesting. Like I have a question here. What about this? You know? And so I read it again, my second year of my master's program, because I'm now working on my master's thesis. And I'm saying to myself that I'm going to write this literacy narrative. So my master's thesis was this literacy narrative on black women pedagogues and how they really shaped my, uh, I think I called it a literacy trio. Um, um, and I was trying to come up with like, I, I guess I was really developing my pedagogical like vision at that point. And so I reread the book a second time. And I was just like, where are the students? How do we write an entire college's history? And we only talked about the students who became doctors, lawyers, senators, gave back to the college, um, and so forth. And so I just sat with it. I did not know then that that would become my dissertation, but it, it did. And so I read it again. So a part of this project is about rereading, like what happens at different points when you reread a text um, or, or when you engage it. What do you now see that you did not see before? What are you um, allowing yourself to see or unsee? Or what are you even making allowances for as it relates to the construction of an institutional narrative? When I wrote the dissertation, I was so focused on this idea of figuring out this book, like who wrote this book and why did they write it this way? And I had no idea that in completing the dissertation and taking some time to breathe, because, you know, post writing a dissertation, you need to breathe and you need to sleep. And so I slept and I took some deep breaths and I just couldn't shake it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to keep this going. And so from that kind of focus on who wrote this book, why did they write this book this way? I've now really evolved to this larger question of um, what I like to call frames of oblivion and what happens with oblivion as it circulates memory and history. And, and truly this kind of central question of what happens with and to the information that we don't know that we don't know. And it never fails that I'm in conversations with folks who are still asking the question, what is an HBCU? Um, so some of that is a very um, linguistic thing, like they have no idea what the initialism is actually describing. But then even on a deeper level, they have no conception of the place that this, this very small corner of U.S. higher education has. And so maybe if I said something like Spelman or Morehouse or Howard, they would be able to make an association, but not in this larger kind of construction um, and historical reality that is the HBCU um, reality. And so my research is really thinking about the institutional narrative genre, which is what I'm calling these kind of writings around um, institutions' histories and how they represent and construct institutional narratives. And so this is a very clear rhetorical intervention. What messaging is used to present um, a particular narrative and why? Um, who is it attempting to protect? Who is it serving? What is it advancing? And as I get closer to understanding that, that concept, 
what I really come to understand is this larger construction of HBCU pride, um, which is what that initial project or mission was for that course that I took um, my first year at Tulu, that there is this attempt to, to promote pride, um, and I would argue a distancing from the realities and memories of slavery. Um, and, and I think that that becomes an, a mission of HBCU um, pride. Um, it becomes a mission of what I begin to characterize as HBCU literacies, what kind of actions and meaning-making possibilities or explorations result from these pride endeavors. Um, and so I'm really excited about this project. I mean, it's, 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 it's becoming a, um, um, I guess as Alice Walker would describe, it's becoming my own healing project to figure out like how I'm understanding pride and shame and and other affective realities of, of blackness um, in a U.S. context. Um, but it's also, I believe, a an opportunity for fields like rhetoric and composition or writing studies, or even just the, the academy writ large to really grapple with what um, is happening with the larger histories of education um, that we are working within um, and what opportunities we have to revise futures um, and to offer resources and possibilities to spaces that have not uh, been allowed. And this is not me thinking about kind of like bridge programs or, you know, opportunities for, um, you know, projects or programs, but rather saying what happens when we use our um, expertise, our engagement with historiography, our um, kind of uh, usage of writing studies to to uh, push back against rehearsals and omissions and say that now we're going to move that to the spaces that we're talking to. And so this is a very action-based project um, that's making me turn to, um, you know, some digital public humanities type work um, and in hopes of building a digital archive of, of, of Tougaloo voices. I, I hope to start at Tougaloo and use it as a model for other HBCUs to say that there's a curriculum possibility here for us to begin to collect the narratives of HBCUs starting with that first year. That there's something to be said about the time that we allow to uh, lapse before we begin to pin an institution's narrative. That we're waiting for some level of success or notoriety to, to represent things when we can actually think about this as a process. That in process, there's much to be gained from the literacy practices that are circulating. So I'm most excited about this project. I mean, uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm writing and I, I, I try to keep writing, but I have to pause very often um, to, to kind of sit with the things that are becoming undone um, for me, within me, um, in hopes of, of, of moving forward a beautiful, meaningful project. Thanks, Kirsten. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.